This is the Lost Start of Communication, hosted by Molly and Trisha. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lost Start of Communication podcast. Today, we are joined by Melody Stanford Martin. Melody is a social ethicist, communication expert, and author of her new book, Brave Talk. Welcome, Melody. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for being here. Why don't you start by introducing yourself to us and the audience and a little bit about your background. Thank you so much. Yeah, so my name is Melody, as you said, and I have a master's degree in social ethics, which basically means uh, how can we be good people together and be in right relationship together, right? How do we design structures and systems of society that create equality and fairness and justice and a moral good right society? And within that, communication is, is paramount, right? To be able to relate and have strong social structures that allow us to be in community with each other and take care of each other, essentially. Communication is so key. And if we don't communicate, if we stop those systems of exchange, we don't really have a society. It's the bedrock of everything we have and everything we do. So out of this understanding, I became really interested in conflict transformation, which is kind of an emerging term for a lot of people. Many of us are familiar with the term conflict resolution, but conflict transformation is a new, sort of a new idea. The, the term was coined by John Paul Lederach at Notre Dame. And it's this idea that instead of just fixing problems on a kind of a surface level, we're going to get to the underneath, the root of the problem and try to fix it at a systemic holistic level. And it's it's a fascinating field of study, in my opinion, because I think from a communication standpoint, we need more of this in the world, right? Taking the time with each other to not just slap a band-aid on things, but to really get to the, the deeper parts of, of these issues that we have, these conflicts that we have with each other, these disagreements, these polarizations. And to do that, you have to have conversations. You have to communicate, right? So out of the passion for this kind of work, I wrote my book, Brave Talk, and it's called Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the Face of Conflict. Uh, and the book is inspired by my relationship with my mother. And the book is actually dedicated to my mother. She, she was a thought partner with me in this. We have very different political and religious beliefs that have caused a, a huge divide between us for many, many years. And it, it almost destroyed our relationship. And over time, we have learned together how to, how to communicate better and how to be in relationship despite those disagreements. And frankly, those impasses that we just have come to understand, we're, we're probably not going to change each other, but how do we have a healthy relationship anyway? And it's been a long and awful struggle. And so I wrote the book, Brave Talk, not only out of my my conflict transformation graduate work, but also out of this experience with this particular relationship and things that I wish I would have known 10 years ago. I am obsessed with this whole topic, especially right now with everything since, I mean, social justice wise and religion wise and politically, everything is in turmoil in our country and there's so much divide and I want to grab your book right now because I have so many relationships that I, you know, have started to realize we have a lot of different views on things or things haven't been discussed properly. And 
my natural inclination is to hide away and say, oh, well, we never brought it up in the past. So why would we bring it up now? We can just pretend like nothing has changed and no conflict is ever going to happen. So uh, I guess my first question is, how did you decide as a graduate student, well, prior to being a graduate student, getting into this work? What made you really feel that drive to study this? I think like a lot of us who write books, we become fascinated with things that we're not good at and things that we don't understand. I think there's kind of a misconception that people, I mean, I'm sure some people write books about things that come easily to them, but for a lot of authors I know, it's these pesky questions that won't leave us alone, that keep us up at night, right? And my pesky question was, what do I do with impasse? What do I do with that? How do I navigate that? How do I not let this destroy my relationship? And even in my graduate work, I would go to my professors and say, okay, all the case studies we're reading have resolutions. They have a way to work it out. What happens when you can't resolve it? And they would just kind of laugh and say, oh, thanks for being in the class. <laughs> there, were, there were no answers for me. And I was so frustrated from, for, from that experience. And so I wrote, you know, my book deals a lot with impasse and it deals a lot with the fears that lie underneath conflict. And and really the values and the, the structures of meaning that form who we are and how important those things are to us. And you spoke about polarization and division, and I couldn't agree more. We are in a, a time of extreme divide. In fact, recently I heard a statistic that 40% of both voting Democrats and voting Republicans in the last election didn't know a single person voting for the other person voting for the other side, essentially. So like, if you're a Democrat, you're at, you had a 40% chance of not knowing a single Trump supporter, right? And if you're a Republican, you don't have a 40% chance of not knowing a single Biden supporter. So everyone in your community, everyone you know, likely has the same views. And we're in these bubbles where we are, we are taught to demonize others, right? I want to be really careful here to say that I, I, and not recommending that we just hold hands and sing kumbaya and soften our beliefs, right? Our beliefs matter. And I think the reason why things feel so inflammatory is because the stakes are really high. The stakes are high for these issues that we care about. And the stakes are high for relationships, right? Because I talk to people all the time who say, wow, I got into a difficult conversation with this person and things got inflammatory. And now I am dead to them. They cut me off. They defriended me. They will no longer speak to me. So I think, I think we should take some time to give some attention to the fact that that is a social death, right? We are, we are committing social acts of violence against people that we no longer want to be community with and that we, we disagree with. And in some cases that's necessary, but in some cases maybe it's not. And it really is tearing at the fabric of our whole society. And we feel it. We feel that conflict in the core of our beings and we feel that in our communication. And we feel that in the fact that a lot of us are afraid and we walk on eggshells as a result, and we don't have these conversations that we should be having. So where does one even begin? Let's say they're feeling impasse in their relationship, or they have different political views from their friend, and they don't know how to talk about it and don't want to create a social death or, you know, harm. And so where do, where can people even start with that? That's the question. That's the, the main question that I think a lot of people are trying to figure out. In fact, I just recently attended a depolarization summit with millions of conversations, trying to, all, all these practitioners from all over the country and even the world trying to figure out how do we depolarize now that things have gotten this bad. So a lot of 
very smart people are working on this. And I, you know, I don't know that I have a step-by-step formula, but for me, what has been one of the most impactful and effectful approach, effective approaches is to, um, and this sounds really strange, but to collaborate with the person and at least get on the same page of like, of saying like, we don't want to be polarized. <laughs> we don't want this. We want a healthy relationship and envisioning what you want your relationship to look like. We want a relationship where we can disagree and not walk away from each other. Right. And that's the, that's the beginnings of what I call a resilient relationship. And I define that as a relationship that can handle the weight of disagreement and not break. So, so that's the first step, right? Go ahead, Molly. Did you want to say something? Yeah. I had a thought around what if you can't even get there? That's where I feel like a lot of us are at at this point where, like you said, we demonize the other party to the point where we don't want, or the other person doesn't want to have a relationship without having the knowledge and done the work to see that it's possible. So is there any strategies you have for changing your framework around demonizing the person before even thinking that a relationship is possible? Yeah. And it's really hard. And I'll, and I'll say why it's hard in a moment, but so the antidote to polarization boils down to the opposite of, of demonization. It's radical humanization, right? How do we radically humanize? And it's very hard to radically humanize someone who you feel like is embracing really toxic things, right? And, it, and sometimes these are misconceptions or misrepresentations of the other side, but sometimes it's like, no, I fully understand your argument and I fully think it's harmful. And I don't want to be close to you as a result of that. And again, I want to re-utter, I want to utter, reinstate that uh, sometimes that's necessary, right, for personal boundaries. What often happens, though, especially when you get into analyzing structures of power and the way people relate to each other, what often happens is that one party is willing to do the work in radically humanizing, but the other party isn't. And you get a dynamic where in psychology, you call that overfunctioning and underfunctioning. So one party, one person is overfunctioning, doing all the work and essentially enabling the other person to sit back on their heels and, and underfunction, right? That those two things go together. And overfunctioners learn to resent the underfunctioner, right? Because they're letting them do all the work. And underfunctioners uh, learn to not take any responsibility. So in order for, and this is why this is an it comes back to a community endeavor. And again, this is where communication and conversation and negotiation come into play. Both parties have to be willing to work on it. Both parties have to be willing to try because if only one party is doing it, you're not going to get anywhere. And that's why it's so hard. So what would you suggest if someone, let's say they are the person that really wants to try and they're not getting much from the other person should we just give up on the relationship or just kind of not bring it up and avoid the conflict and focus on the good parts of the relationship? Or is there a way to encourage someone to try to be interested in that? I think it's yes to both of those questions. There will be times where you, you kind of can't, you know, and I think it depends on the stakes. Like if you're working with a coworker and you know your job is at stake, you're going to have to ask some really hard questions about what you're willing to risk in order to bring that up and have the potential for that to go sideways. 
But I think what you said, the, the, the last thing that you said is really significant to try to make this appealing to someone. And that's what I hope to do. I hope to normalize awkward conversations, uncomfortable conversations, normalize being uncomfortable for each other, right? Not unsafe, but uncomfortable. There's a certain degree to which these conversations are just, they're just weird and they're going to be weird and that's okay. Right. But I think there is something really special in inviting someone into this conversation with you say, Hey, you know, let's try, let's at least try to get there together because a, you matter to me. B, these issues matter to both of us. C, I want to understand you. I want to understand what makes you tick. I want you to understand me. And I want to, D, in a, in a deeper sense, see you. I want to see you. I want to connect with you. And I want you to see me. There's an element in that that is hospitality, inviting someone in, you know, and, and hoping that they return the favor. And in order to do that, you have to lower antagonism. You have to build trust, right? And so often what happens is we get frustrated and in our catharsis, we scream. And that just breaks, that shatters every speck of trust we would have built up with that person. Because, right, yelling at someone is not transformative, right? On an emotional, psychological level, it's not transformative. You're not going to change someone's mind by screaming at them. You're stupid. That's, that's not how it works. And, and so in order to not do that, it takes a, a tremendous amount of work and patience. Um, what I often see, and I want to say this, a note to this in a moment, what I often see is the people who end up doing the most work are the people who have the most stake in the issue. And that tends to boil down to underrepresented people, minorities, people who don't have a lot of power are often doing all of the work or most of the work to get there. And so I would focus on people who have traditionally have are granted more power by society. Those are the folks I want to talk to. Y'all, we, myself as a, you know, a white woman living in the United States have the onus of responsibility to take that on, right? So that's a whole nother conversation. But but to your to your question, yes, I think we should invite each other into these conversations. I I and I think we need to build more spaces and more inroads and more cultural norms to be able to do that. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. I recently I'm like 20 minutes in um, away from finishing White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And a point, so many points hit me, but one point that really hit me that resonates with what you just said is how we need to get more comfortable with being in uncomfortable conversations and deconnecting the idea that uncomfortable is unsafe. I think that's something that we have a lot of connection around and we have these walls up and these, these, we get triggered by this idea of being uncomfortable in a conversation. And then that turns to, I feel unsafe. And then that's when the relationship can then fall down. So I wanted to make that point because that's something that really resonated with me. And I love the idea of just making awkward conversations normalized <laughs> for my own personal life because I'm awkward, but also in this sense as well. <laughs> I think that's so important. So I wanted to bring it back to, if you don't mind, I sound like a therapist, but the relationship with your mother. <laughs> Um, how that obviously you both have gotten to the point, it sounds like where you, I mean, your mother, daughter, you wanted to have a relationship with each other, right? What were those next steps after you found a person that you have impasses with, but have agreed, I want to make this relationship somehow stay a relationship? 
Yeah. And that's, it's been a, it's been a 10 year journey at, at points. I tell the story in the book, there was a point where we didn't speak for four months and both of us independently of each other without knowing were physically ill. Like fit, like I was in physical therapy because I was walking like an 80 year old woman. Like my body was like, not okay with this rift in my life. And I think a lot of times we don't, we don't pay attention to how being at odds with people we love really does impact us on all levels. Right. And that lack of communication, that, that social, that social death, that social violence, how that impacts us. So, so one of the things that my mother and I had to do, because we're both we're both very passionate people. We're both, we both like to argue. We both like to get in there and, and, you know, try to convert the other person for lack of a better term to our point of view. Um, what we had to start doing, and I actually wrote an article about this for psychology today. I highly recommend this technique. If you're having trouble with this, a lot of people will have a difficult conversation at and the end of the conversation. What do they say? We're just going to agree to disagree. And that's the end of it. What I would like to encourage people to do is flip that on its head. Start the conversation there. We're going to start this conversation with agreeing to disagree, and we're going to just educate each other in our understanding of the world. And that does a couple of different things. It lowers antagonism because you know someone's not going to attack you and sneak attack you, right? And someone doesn't have a hidden agenda that they're secretly sitting in the corner going, ha, she will agree with me. He will agree with me. They will agree with me. Um, and it, and because no one's winning and losing in that conversation, it's not a competition. It's not a debate. You're just educating. It makes this space for people to say, oh my gosh, I, you just taught me something new. Oh my gosh. I never thought about it that way. And it, it gives people flexibility to change their mind without someone sitting in the corner going, ha ha, I win, you know? So I think changing those communicative dynamics can be extremely powerful. And that's one of the only ways my mother and I have gotten to the point where we could only, from going from, we can only talk about politics for 20 minutes without crying. And then to, we can, now we can talk about politics for two hours and we're okay, right? Where we know we're solid, even though we like hate each other's ideas and opinions. Um, what, what has gotten us there is saying, we just have accepted as a, as an assumption of a working assumption that we are, we're not going to change each other's mind. Probably not. It's probably not going to happen. And that's, there's a lot of grief in that. And a lot of frustration because you're like, how can this person that I love so much believe something so different and see the world so differently from me? How can we possibly have the same values? How can we possibly have anything in common? Um, but it, it isn't true. And we do have more in common than we realize. So, so that, so that was what I would recommend. If you're having trouble, just say, hey, can we just have a conversation where we just agree up front? We are not going to try to change each other, right? Because we ultimately, we can't control other people's we can't, minds. We can't control other people's emotions. It's, it's wrong to think that we can, right? So if we start there, then we might actually get more of what we're hoping for in the long run. And if not, we've just learned how to argue better because we understand the other side better. <laughs> I think that's a really good point and a helpful strategy because the main thing that gets in the way when you're having an argument or a discussion where people disagree are usually are our emotions. So like you said, after 20 minutes, you'll start crying unless you start with something that says, hey, 
we're not going to change each other's minds. We're going to agree to disagree. This is just a discussion. I feel like that helps with some of the emotional regulation. And so you're coming at it from a more objective place as opposed to this is me and these are my feelings at stake. Do you have any other thoughts about ways we can regulate emotions when we're in the heat of conflict or in the heat of a disagreement? I'm so glad you asked this question because in the work that I was doing, you know, with, with writing my book, not to always bring it back to my book, but this is so central to what my thought process around this emotional regulation is so important that I dedicated an entire chapter to it because a lot of us don't learn these skills formally. We might've picked it up by social modeling. We might've picked it up if we had a good teacher that taught us how to regulate our emotions, or we might be naturally a little bit better at it depending on our personality type or our family system. Right. But but a lot of us don't have language or even a mental framework for, for emotional regulation. So I tried to develop one, actually, that I think is helpful. So I'll just give you a two-second um, overview of that. So I call it the two rivers of feelings to try to just at least understand and take stock of how something makes you feel or what something brings up for you. So all of us have two rivers of feelings that feed um, two rivers of feelings that inform our person, our mind body, right? And the first river is what I would call the self-protection river. That's our fight or flight response, our, paras our parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system, which is it? I always confuse the two. I want to say sympathetic, but I'm I think it's not. sympathetic. Yes, it's sympathetic. You're right. Sympathetic nervous system. The, the immediate rush, the white rotter rapids of, of fear or anger or, or, um, frustration or embarrassment, shame, right? These are all this, these kind of quick flash in the pan emotions. So that's the self-protection self river. It can, it, can, it can run fast really quickly, uh, but it's also kind of shallow. It also kind of tapers off quickly as well. The other river emotion is what I call our meaning making ability or our grief ability right? And if those river, rivers are running at the same time, if you're both feeling fight or flight, but you're also feeling grief, grief as in the world is not as it should be, grief as in this relationship is not what I need it to be, grief as in there are, there's injustice, right? There's pain, there's longer, slower emotions happening. It can feel really confusing when you feel both of those at the same time. But if you can start to parse out, okay, huh, what am I feeling from the, from the, from the self-protection river? I'm feeling I'm feeling sweaty. I'm feeling amped up. I'm feeling like I want to run out of the room, right? That's my fight or flight response. What am I feeling from the grief river? How can I love this person who believes such a different thing than me? How does that even work, right? How do I make meaning of this? I think once we can understand what we're feeling, and that's just one, that's just one uh, framework among many that might help you. But if, if we can understand what we're feeling, we can start at least being honest with ourselves and honest with someone else. Like, hey, I'm feeling... I'm feeling too worked up to talk about this right now. Let's, let's meet again at three o'clock and keep going. I just need to take some time because I'm just, I'm just white water rafting right now. Right. Uh, so I think, I think that's a big part of it is, is the self-understanding first before, before we do this work, because if we don't, we're going to make a mess, right? These, these things that will get the better of us. And even myself, like I, I've studied this for years. I get, I still get upset. I still get frustrated. I still get angry enough to, to chuck things at the wall. Uh, but if we can gain a level of 
of awareness in in where we are we are and what we're doing then those emotions can be present with us and they can give us important information about where we are they can give us important data about ourselves and about the world around us they're not bad they're just it's a source of information that can stay a source of information and not overwhelm us and get in the better of us completely and i giving yourself permission to feel those things is important like you said you are an expert in the field and know all about it knowledge-wise and cognitively, but then in the moment, we can't control those, we'll call it sympathetic nervous system feelings <laughs> or emotions. Um, we'll put in the show notes if we're incorrect, but those are some things you just can't control, right? And just acknowledging it first and giving yourself permission to have those emotions and then tap out if you need to. I think recognizing that we're not weak or we're not failures if we need to do that is such an important thing to remember. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of shame around emotions, but we can't, we can't control the emotions any more than we can control the weather. Right. So I think it, what you said is so important. That's just part of being human and there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with being angry, angry, anger in particular is one that gets a super bad rap. Right. Um, but, it, but yeah, I think it, that's part of who we are. Let's, let's maybe embrace those things. And like you said, tap out if we need to. And I would think just by the nature of the phrase conflict transformation, there's something to taking that anger or taking whatever the initial emotion is and transforming it into something productive. Would you say that's accurate or how would that look? Absolutely. Let's use anger as an example. And like we said, you know, we can't control our emotions, but we can channel them, right? Uh, there's a phrase in community organizing called cold anger. And I've, I've really dug into this idea because I think it's fascinating. So if hot anger is the initial outrage, the initial response from a grievous, the grievance that happens, I'm sorry if you hear my puppy in the background, He's, he, he wants to play. Uh, cold anger would be taking that anger and channeling it into something productive, making a plan, right? Taking action. Uh, so the, you could say, you could describe the entire work of community organizing and activism is just taking public hot anger and turning it into cold anger. Taking the outrage of, taking the outrage of the demonstration and the protest and the frustration and the public, public shame, public rage, and transforming that in the long term into legislation changes, policy changes, voting, changing culture, right? And I think you could say the same thing on a micro scale in these conversations that we have with each other, you know, recognizing and, and even honoring the hot anger, you know, it, it is right to get angry when something unjust happens. It is right to get angry when someone hurts us. That's, that's right. But taking that and not staying there, but moving into that cold anger stage, you say, okay, now what are we going to do about it? So I, I think that's an absolutely an apt way to tie that back into conflict transformation, right? We're getting to the root of the problem so that it doesn't happen again. And in order for it not to happen again, we have to do some systematic work, some deeper underlying work to look at how we're operating might be different. And it takes a lot of creativity. Um, yeah, creativity. That's just a word that came up that you said, tell me more about how we had a creative expert. I don't know exactly what to call her on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, but how would you say creativity plays into all of this? For me, this work is incredibly creative. It's, 
And a lot of times creativity, we think of it as like painting pictures or something kind of happy, but creativity also can be grief work. It can also be making meaning in the world, right? Getting creative in, in light of those circumstances. And so I would love for people to think of conflict transformation as ultimately creative work, right? Because you're a lot of times forging a path that has never been forged before. You're trying to find solutions that have not been tried before because what you're doing now isn't working. So you have to try something different. So I, I, I love the idea of creativity and I think creativity too, approaching this as a creative endeavor also is disarming. It also takes some of the antagonism out of the equation. And actually, I tried to embody this in the way that I wrote. So if you look through my book, there's actually like silly stories and there's diagrams and there's there's human elements to it because I wanted people to be able to connect with this on a on the level of general readers, not just academics, not just practitioners. There's lots of books like that out there for, for people who teach other people or train other people. I wanted to write a book that I would enjoy reading, even though it's a difficult subject, right? So I wanted to feel like... I wanted it to feel like a creative pursuit. I've, I'm in the process of designing and launching a conversation game that helps people create these spaces with each other and, and co-create a learning environment together for this kind of work. So for me, you know, and, and also I'm a creative professional, right? I'm trained as a graphic designer. I own a marketing company as well. So I, I love the idea of engaging our full imaginations to solve social problems. And I think we can. And I think a lot of times we limit ourselves because we think this has to be such intense, serious work all the time. It is serious and it is intense, but it doesn't have to feel that heavy, I think. Yeah, and bringing some of the creativity to it, I'm sure will open more doors and open your eyes to see new solutions as opposed to just getting stuck of here's one way to do it. And if maybe that's not working. And so the more you embrace that creativity, you have more potential to inspire change. So I love that. Absolutely. So this has been super fascinating so far, but we like to end every episode with a tangible takeaway for our listeners. So other than buying the book Brave Talk, which we highly recommend, what would you suggest our listeners start doing to improve their communication or conflict transformation? All right. So this is the tangible takeaway that I would like to recommend. Find someone that you don't normally have these kinds of conversations with and ask them if they will sit down for you with you for 20 minutes and talk about something that makes you uncomfortable and literally set a timer, 20 minutes. And then when the timer buzzes, thank them for their time. It's, it's a, a really important practice to thank people for disagreeing with us. When they take the time to disagree with us well, thank them for their time and see how it goes. And I would be very interested to hear from anyone who does this and how it goes for them. I think that takes a lot of bravery too. And I think I look forward to doing that. I think I, I, I want to think about like, I feel like I have a lot of people on social media that I would want to do this with too. And that's a whole nother discussion about conflict in social media, but I will definitely take that takeaway and try and apply it to myself this week. So Melody, thank you so much. This was a very timely, needed, eye-opening and thought-provoking discussion. So I appreciate it a lot. I know Trisha does too. I don't want to speak for both of us, but um, it was great. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. 
Thank you, Molly and Trisha. It's been a pleasure. And this podcast is amazing. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll check out your book. We'll put it all in the show notes as well. Have a good day.